You sure? All right, open your Bibles to Matthew 8. Let me start by saying Happy New Year. Our first Sunday together of the new year. Welcome back to all of you who've been traveling to different family events. Nadine and I had a wonderful time with our children this past uh, holiday season. First time the four of us were together in a year, and it was really good. Maybe one of the best visits we had with each other in a long time. I couldn't be more proud of my kids. Even though they just left, I, I can hardly wait to see them again. I know you moms and dads understand. So I'm still taking a break from my series on the book Unchristian. I'm not done with that. I know I'm not. I will be going back to it and have more to say in the weeks to come. But the Holy Spirit's allowed to edit, right? And he edits, and I do the best I can to, to follow his lead. So we'll go back to that, but um, I want to kind of expound a little bit more on some of the things I shared last week. Last week I shared with you some insights that I had for the year 2010. Basically I asked God to speak to me about the coming year, and he did. And he showed me some things, and I shared with you uh, what he showed me. It was primarily insights from Matthew chapter 8 and Jeremiah uh, chapter 18. So the title of today's message would be Insights for 2010, the Expanded Version. You know? Now sometimes you get the director's cut and they put all those extra scenes in. This will be the Expanded Version. So I want to go back to Matthew 8 and dig a little bit deeper. So if you're open to Matthew 8, I'm going to start reading at verse 18. You can follow along. When Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. Then a teacher of the law came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus told him, Follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Let me just stop there for a second. That sound harsh? Like, dude, my father just died. Can I at least put him in the ground? That's not what the guy was asking. The guy was saying, I'll follow you, but can I wait until the day comes when my father passes on weeks from now, months from now, years from now? Can I wait until my father dies? Then I'll follow you. that make it a little bit different? That's what was meant there. Jesus wasn't just being harsh. He wasn't being, no, he wasn't saying, no, you can't attend your your father's funeral, you got to follow me right this second. The guy was saying, hey, i got to go take care of you know, this first, and then I'll follow you. Makes it a little bit different. Anyway, back to the text. Jesus calms a storm. Then he got into the boat, and his disciples followed him. Without warning, a furious storm came up on the lake, so that the waves swept over the boat. But Jesus was sleeping. The disciples went and woke him, saying, Lord, save us, we're going to drown. He replied, you have a little faith. Why are you so afraid? Then he got up and rebuked the wind and the waves, and it was completely calm. The men were amazed and asked, what kind of man is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Lord, be with us today. 
Lord, prepare our hearts to receive your word. And Lord, use me. Take the little that I have, breathe on it, and let it be life to your people. Amen? So a couple of weeks ago, I prayed and asked the Lord to give me insights for 2010. Sometimes the way I pray is this. I've done this over the years as a pastor. I was like, Lord, show me where we are in your word. Show me your church. Show me this congregation that you've asked me to shepherd and lead. Show me, give me a picture from your word where we are as a body. Well, this is the picture he gave me. He gave me Matthew chapter 8. This account where the disciples are crossing from one side of the lake to the other side of the lake. It's the first thing God showed me when I prayed. I believe that metaphorically, we're going to live this text out in the coming year. I think we're going to see it happen on an individual basis. Individually, you as a disciple of Christ, as a follower of his, as one of his apprentices, you'll get to walk out this text. But I also think there'll be a communal effect, that communally we'll walk out this text. We'll walk it out together as a church, as a body. My first impression is that Jesus gave orders. That's key to this text in verse 18. Jesus gave orders to go to the other side. A storm came up without warning. The waves swept over the boat. Disciples were afraid. Jesus was sleeping. And they woke him up. When we look at Jesus' reply to them, he replies, he takes action, and there's dramatic result from his action. He says, oh, you a little faith. And he got up and rebuked the wind and the waves. And it was completely calm. As a result of that, the disciples were amazed. The disciples did three things in the boat. Well, the first thing they did is they obeyed. Jesus said, get the boat ready. We're going to the other side. They obeyed him. The second thing they did is they feared. They were afraid. And the third thing is the disciples were amazed. I think in the year ahead, we will be obedient. I think things will happen, and we'll be afraid. I think in the end result is that we'll be amazed. So I want to talk about that text a little bit more, but let's give a little bit of backstory. We kind of jumped into the middle of the chapter. What happened? What preceded this event of the disciples crossing the lake and the storm hitting? We see in verses 2 and 3 that Jesus heals an incurable disease, leprosy. I love the way Jesus prays. Listen to those verses. A man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand, touched the man. I am willing, he said. Be clean. Immediately, he was cured of leprosy. I want to be more like Jesus. How about you? You know? You know, he didn't have to get in God's presence. Right? He didn't need four worship songs. He had to pray for 20 minutes. 
He had to cast out seven demons. He had to invite 14 angels to come, right? He had so much power. He got so much authority, so much intimacy with the Father, that all he had to do was touch him and say, be clean. Boom. And he was clean. That's cool. That's really cool. That'll change the whole room, you know? You might make it on Charisma magazine, you know? You just touch somebody and say, be clean. And boom, they're clean. What else happened before they got into the boat? In Matthew chapter 8, Jesus is astonished. Think about that for a second. Jesus is astonished. What does it take to astonish Jesus? It takes faith. Not only faith, the faith of an outsider. Someone who's not a believer. Faith in Jesus' power and authority to do the things he said he could do. That's what astonishes Jesus. Verses 5 to 10, Matthew chapter 8. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed and in terrible suffering. Jesus said to him, I will go and heal him. The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve you to have you come under my roof, but just say the word, my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was astonished. I would love to astonish Jesus. I'd love to one day in my life do something. That astonishes him. Wouldn't that be cool? You get to heaven, Jesus says, I remember you. You're the one who astonished me. When Jesus heard this, he was astonished and said to the followers, I tell you the truth, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. Then Jesus said to the centurion, Go, it will be done just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed that very hour. I want to live a life of faith that astonishes Jesus. How about you? And after that, what happens? A little bit more of the backstory. Jesus has a prayer meeting. A bunch of people get healed. A ton of other people get delivered. Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law with the touch. And then there's a powerful meeting that night at Peter's house. Verse 16 says, When evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him, and he drove out the spirits with a word and healed all the sick. Jesus had a full day. No wonder he was sleeping in the boat, you know? People with many demons were brought to him. Some of those people were outside the camp. Some of those people were considered outsiders. Some of those people were inside the camp, and they had demons. Jesus took care of all of them. So what happened after? We looked at the backstory. Let's do a little flash forward. What happens when he gets to the other side of the lake? Jesus has a powerful encounter with two extremely demonized men. 
It says in verses 28 to 34 of chapter 8, Matthew's Gospel. When he arrived at the other side in the region of the Gadareans, two demonized, demon-possessed men coming from the tombs met him. They were so violent that no one could pass that way. What do you want with us, Son of God? They shouted. Have you come to torture us before the appointed time? Some distance from them, a large herd of pigs was feeding. The demons begged Jesus, If you drive us out, send us into the herd of pigs. He said to them, Go! I love the way he prays. I love the way Jesus prays. Be clean. Go. And it happens. He don't need a whole lot of words. He said to them, Go! So they came out and went into the pigs. And the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and died in the water. Those tending the pigs ran off, went into town and reported all this, including what happened to the demon-possessed men. The whole town went out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they pleaded with him to leave the region. He freaked them out. I love his deliverance prayers. Anybody here ever try to cast out a demon? Could you just do it one word? It's always taken me more than one word. Could it be? Could it be that it was these demons, these severely demonized men, the demons that were in these men, this herd of demons that were in these men, that maybe they had something to do with the storm that was encountered as they were crossing the lake. Jesus says, we're going to the other side of the lake. He gives orders, Scripture says, we're going to the other side of the lake. And on the way there, on the way to where Jesus told them to go, they have this furious storm rise up without warning. Could it be spiritual warfare? Could it be some type of power encounter? I think so. I don't think that's going outside the context of scripture here have you ever tried to go someplace you haven't been before or do something that jesus commanded you to do and on the way of going there in the midst of trying to do it have you encountered opposition strong opposition maybe opposition that wanted to take you out i think that's what happened here jesus said we're going someplace else And in the process of going from where they were to where he wanted them to be, there was opposition. I think it had something to do with the demons that were in the guys they encountered. Because as soon as they get there, boom, they're face to face. There's a real, powerful, tense combat, spiritual combat situation. And with the word, Jesus won. I think we should remember this. I think the storm was a preemptive strike to try and keep those men in bondage. And Jesus wanted to set them free. We should remember this when we face our storms. 
I've told you my vision is to take it to the streets, right? To go out there. I think so long as we stay inside the four walls of the church, we don't, we don't get heavy-duty serious opposition. Try and take it outside. Try and go out there. When our storms come, keep that in mind. So, gave you a little backstory, a little flash forward. Let's, let's talk about this encounter. Jesus gave orders. He gave orders for them to go to the other side. He gave orders for change. He gave orders for transition. Right? When you go from one place to another place, that's transition. That's change. Thayer's lexicon reveals that the word orders here, or in some of your translations, it might say command, refers to the orders of a military commander. Orders that are passed along the line by a subordinate. Jesus gave orders. It wasn't a suggestion. It wasn't a recommendation. He didn't survey the disciples and says, hey, what do you guys want to do today? Where would you like to go? I think there were times they probably had those kind of discussions. Today, this day, Matthew chapter 8, it wasn't one of those times. He gave orders. And I think this is the point that allows Jesus to raise the question, the disciples awaken him, why do you have such little faith? Because that could sound mean too. Wait a minute, we're about to drown here. Hello? And you're asking us where our faith is? Oh, sleepy one? (laughs) What Jesus could have added at that point is, hey guys, don't you remember, I gave orders. I said that we're going to the other side. I remember hearing John Wimber preach on this one. He said they were going to go on the water, under the water, or over the water. But they were going, one way or another, they were going to the other side. My friends, listen to me. We are going to the other side. We are going to take it to the streets. One way or another. Because I believe Jesus has given orders. I believe it's what he told me to do. I think it's a major reason why I'm here. We're going to take it to the streets. I'm taking all this time and preparation because it's that serious for me. We're going to take it to the streets. It's what you were created for. He says we're going to the other side. So what's on the other side for you right now? The bridge Long Island is still in transition. God has ordered up some changes. Know that we have not arrived yet. But we're on our way. Sometimes it feels like, you know, when we go on a long journey with the kids, Dad, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? (laughs) Hey, Dad. Hey, Dad. (laughs) No, we're not there yet. Guys, we're not there yet. But we're on our way. What's on the other side? I think on the other side is more power. I think on the other side is more freedom. I believe that God's created each one of you to be agents of freedom. 
to be exporters of freedom. It's for freedom that he set the captives free. It's for freedom that he set you free. And he has set you free so that you can be an agent to set other people free. What's on the other side? I think what's on the other side is that we get to set people free like Jesus set those two demonized guys free. There's more power. I believe we have to be exporters of freedom, but first, we got to be free. You can only give what you have, right? So there were storms. On their way to the other side, they encounter a storm. I think, I suspect that maybe some of you were a bit discouraged by last week's message, by me saying there are storms coming. Let me ask you this. Was 2009 storm-free? How about 2008? Should we expect that there'll be some storms in 2010? I think it comes with territory. But I look at you guys, and you got what it takes. You got here. You got this far. You navigated those storms. You'll get through these storms. You've got what it takes. You know why? Because Jesus is in the boat. That's why you got what it takes. You're not alone. He's in the boat with you. The scripture tells us that the rain falls on the righteous and the unrighteous alike. Just a few chapters earlier in Matthew chapter 5. Jesus says he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. And he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Listen to me. These storms are not punishment. If a storm comes, if you're in the boat with Jesus and a storm comes, you're not being punished. He's not disciplining you. It wasn't disobedience that got the disciples in that storm, was it? They obeyed. Jesus gave orders. Get the boat ready. We're going to the other side. They got the boat ready. They all got in the boat, and they were on their way to the other side. It was their obedience that got them in that place. Storms come. And us as a church, or you as individuals, we have to face storms in 2010. It's not because you've sinned. It's not because you've disobeyed. But because you've obeyed. Because you said yes to him. Storms are a punishment. Listen to me. This is truth. And let it set you free. Storms are not punishment. It's not his disciplining you. It's part of the journey. It comes with the territory. It's the result of his presence in our lives. What stirred up that storm? I believe it was the light of God. It was the power of God. It was the anointing of the Holy Spirit that resided in Jesus and proceeded from him. And it really ticked off the demons that were already on the other side of the lake. May we be such people that there's so much of his presence inside of us that demons are uncomfortable all around us. And that people get set free because of the Jesus who's in us. Storms are not punishment. In this context, it's a good sign. Can you see it that way? So storms will come. But it's going to come not because we've done something wrong, 
but because he done something right. And mostly because he's with us. And he's in us. The storm didn't come because the disciples had somehow wandered from the Lord. They were in the boat with him. He was in the boat with them. It wasn't that they'd gone in the wrong direction or gone off and done their own thing. They were traveling together. They were walking together. They were sailing together. And the storm came. It was their obedience that got them in this predicament. And God Almighty, God Almighty was with them. Ridge Long Island, listen to me. God is with you. He's with you. He's in the boat with you. More than that, he resides within you. He's taken up residence in your heart. He's with you. And what you face, what we face, is not punishment. It's not because we've sinned, but because we're choosing to do the things he's called us to do. So what are some of the characteristics of this storm in Scripture? It was unexpected. So a storm may arise at an unexpected time. Scripture says that it came without warning, though God in his great mercy seems fit, at least today, to give us some warning. Hey, guys, there's going to be a storm. So you can get ready. This is the mix in me of that pastoral and prophetic thing. I see that there's going to be a storm. And the pastor in me wants me to tell you, get ready. Be prepared. God seemed fit to give us this prophetic warning from his word. What else do we see about this storm? It's furious. It's not a small thing. It's a furious storm. This boat had professional fishermen, men who made their living. They lived their lives out on the sea. And they reacted so strongly to this storm that they said, Lord, save us. We're going to drown. What does it take? How furious does a storm have to be if you get a seasoned fisherman? They probably made their living on the water as did their fathers and their grandfathers. There was at least four of them, right? James and John, Peter and Andrew, who were experienced. And nowhere in the text does it say, oh, it was Matthew and Judas who are freaking out over the storm, and Peter and Andrew and James and John are saying, hey, guys, it'll be okay. We've been here before. It says they. They freaked out. That tells me this is a pretty serious storm. The waves were big. It was, it was bigger than them. Swept over the boat. The waves were bigger than their boat. I think there's some big waves coming. But maybe that's not such a bad thing. I wonder. I'm just guessing. Not let's say it the Lord. I'm just saying. 
Every time there's been a fresh move of the Spirit, where the waves of the Spirit would come, you think some people got freaked out? You think it was so different? It was so out of the box? It was so unexpected? It was so huge that maybe they felt like their boat was being swamped? I think about when things happened up in Toronto. You think they were completely prepared and ready? Maybe they were overwhelmed by that wave of the Spirit like this boat was overwhelmed by the waves from the lake. I don't know. It could be. What if the storms that come are waves of the Spirit? I don't know. It wouldn't be so bad. But it still might be frightening. It still might be overwhelming. I think God wants to do big things. I think he wants to do God-sized things. I'm asking him to come and do God-sized things. Things that are bigger than us. Things that are bigger than this church. As a result of this storm, fears arose. People's fears were stirred up. And those fears needed to be faced with faith. How do I know that? Because Jesus questioned their faith. So fears will arise in 2010. Stuff's going to happen in this community of faith that's going to cause some of us to be afraid. And the response to that fear needs to be faith. Faith will be required in 2010. Hebrews 1.11 says, Now faith is being sure of what you hope for and certain of what you do not see. Faith is an action based upon a belief sustained by confidence. I call that the ABCs of faith. Faith is an action based upon a belief sustained by confidence. Word faith is pistis, and it means to lean upon a staff or to hide beneath the shelter of a rock. It requires action. It's not faith. You're not in the activity of faith. You're not faithing, as it would be, until your weight is actually on that staff. That's the faith part. Will this staff, is it strong enough to sustain my girth? It's not faith until you're actually underneath the rock and hiding. That's the faithing process. That's the activity of faith. Faith is an action based upon a belief sustained by confidence. In faith, I can walk across this floor to the other side of the room because I believe that the floor will hold me up. I have confidence because I've walked on this floor before. And as big as I am, it's held me up before. I got big God. I believe in him. I have confidence in him. And so I can take actions of faith based upon that confidence in him. Faith is taking action in the absence of empirical evidence. Now for those of us who are a bit more scientific, For those of you who lean toward the category of engineer, the absence of empirical evidence 
is very upsetting to me. I understand. Boy, does God have an exciting journey for you. Faith is taking action in the absence of empirical evidence. It's being sure of what you hope for and certain of what you don't see. Faith is asking God what before he shows you how. Faith is trusting God for the what before you know how he's going to do it. We'll need this kind of faith in 2010. I don't know the specifics yet, but I know we'll need that kind of faith. There's something he's going to ask us to do. Take it to the streets, maybe. At least. Before we know exactly how to do it. And it'll require faith. This kind of faith will expose our fears. It'll expose our fears for the unsubstantiated mist that they truly are. Faith will overcome fear. When Nadine and I moved to the Pacific Northwest and began pastoring the church up there, I remember going through a season of being overwhelmingly discouraged. I'd wake up in the morning and could barely get myself out of bed. And I remember thinking to myself, why? Why am I so discouraged? I couldn't put a finger on anything. As a matter of fact, one day in particular, I remember sitting down and doing a personal inventory, a personal self-assessment. I looked at every area of my life. I was healthy, had good marriage, my kids were doing great, the church was happy to have us, financially we were all right. Every area of life I looked at, I could not come up with one logical reason why I should be depressed or discouraged. And so I came to the conclusion, since there was nothing natural that I could point to, it had to be spiritual. And in our years there, I would discover that things like this depression and discouragement just had a mighty stronghold in the Pacific Northwest. You hear about how depressed people are in Seattle and how often people, you know, how common suicide is. Well, coming back to New York, coming back to the Northeast, I don't see depression here or that level of discouragement. I experienced a different stronghold. And I think the stronghold here is fear. Where it was discouragement and depression there, I think it's fear here. Things like 9-11 just support that fear, right? But there are more people who wrestle with um, some type of fear in this region than we've seen in the Northwest. Maybe comparable to what they experienced with discouragement and depression there. Does that sound right to you? I mean, you know, nobody has to raise a hand, but how many of you wrestle with fear of something or another? Some type of fear. I think God wants to set you free from that fear. And here's a key in this text. In Matthew chapter 8, here's what will help you. Dealing, confronting, overcoming that fear. Faith. Faith in what he said he's going to do. He will take you to the other side. 
Wouldn't it be great to be free from that fear? Oh, man. That would be good. Fear will limit you, it will intimidate you, and it'll control you. And stormy circumstances will only stir up those fears. 2010, you'll have an opportunity to face those fears and overcome them with faith. Now listen to me. God's not trying to scare you. He's not trying to torture you. He wants to set you free. It's for the purpose of freedom. It's to be free. Be encouraged. God is with us. And he himself will contend with the storm. That's what happened in the boat. None of the the fishermen calmed the storm. Neither the tax collector. Thomas didn't do it. Judas didn't do it. God himself contended with the storm. He himself will contend with the storms that we have to face. The battle belongs to him. He's amazing. I believe in 2010 we will watch God do God-sized things on our behalf. And just like the disciples in the boat were amazed at what God did, even the wind and waves obey him, we'll we'll be amazed as he contends with the storms in our lives. And just like those storms had to yield to his authority, our storm will have to yield to his authority. And what was the result? It was calm, right? It was complete. The scripture says it was completely calm. What's on the other side of the storm? Peace. (laughs) Peace is on the other side of the storm. Oh, to be at peace. Wouldn't you like to be at peace? Just close your eyes for a second. Think about it. When was the last time you felt completely calm? You felt totally at peace. Wouldn't you like to go back to that place? Wouldn't you like to live in that place? If all I got to do is overcome a storm, and I can have complete calm, I can have total peace, I'd love being at peace. Around streams, we're fond of saying that peace is the potting soil for revelation. Dorothy prayed that for me this morning. In that place of peace, revelation flows freely. Isaiah 26.3 says that you will keep in perfect peace him whose mind is steadfast, Because he trusts in you. I like the way the Amplified says it as well. You will guard him and keep him in perfect and constant peace, whose mind, both in inclination and its character, is stayed on you. Because he commits himself to you, leans on you, hopes confidently in you. You see a connection there between peace and faith?
Do you see a connection between peace and focus? What we focus on, we make room for. Let us be your people who fix our eyes on Jesus. I think having our eyes fixed on him works really, really well in the midst of a storm. So be encouraged, my friends. We are on a great adventure. And we're on it together. We're in the same boat together. We're in this together. I think in 2010, we will obey him. And as a result of our obedience, storms will come. That God himself will contend with those storms. And as a result, we're going to be amazed. So let's pray. Lord, would you amaze us? You are amazing. Would you amaze us? Come and do God-sized things in our midst. Come and do the things that only you could do. Lord, I pray that you would pour out upon us, in our hearts, in our minds, in our lives, everything that we need to be obedient. Everything we need to do, whatever it is you tell us to do. Lord, I pray that the storms that we face would only be storms that as a, as a result of our obediently following your lead and your direction. Lord, I pray that we'd stay together, that we'd stay connected, that we trust one another, that we love one another. Lord, I ask that your presence would be so rich and so thick inside of us They would mess with all the demons around us. And just like those two men were set free, I pray that everybody we encounter would become more free. To that end, Lord, set us free. For each person in here, Lord, whatever fears we face, set us free. Set this region free from the stronghold of fear. Set this church free. From a stronghold of fear. Set each individual free. Lord, set me free from fear. I pray that you would replace all of these fears the fear of man, the fear of stuff. Replace that, Lord. Replace these counterfeit fears with a holy, 